Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and as always, my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. How are you, Paddy? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely splendid. This podcast is coming out a little bit late because over the weekend, we had a few things come up when we were supposed to be recording it. However, it's up now, so hopefully people will forgive us for the tardiness with our posting. We normally post on a Monday, and this, unfortunately, is not a Monday. Um, But anyway... It is a good episode. Well, hopefully we haven't recorded it yet, so it might not be, but uh, hopefully it's a good episode. What are we talking about today, Gary? Yeah, so guys, over the last couple of episodes, what we've been doing is giving you some insight into what's basically going to kill you. You know, what are the different conditions, the different afflictions, the different infections, the different diseases, the different events that are likely to lead to your demise later in life? Because very clearly the purpose of this podcast and triage as a whole is to, you know, feed into the preventative healthcare side of things. You know, that's ultimately what we're aiming at. We want you, the listener, to be equipped with the knowledge to live a healthier life um, and a higher quality life for as long as possible. That's effectively what we're trying to preserve. And over the last couple of episodes, we've discussed the things that are most likely to lead to your death, such as you know, it might be it might be suicide or homicide or accidents if you're around our age. But more likely, um, in terms of total numbers of people killed, you're looking at things like heart disease, cancers, COPD, etc., all of which we discussed in great detail in the last two episodes. But in this episode now, what we want to do is take all that knowledge that we've gained on what actually affects um, our population and ask ourselves, What can we actually do? How can we intervene and how can we prevent those deaths as best as possible, which will hopefully give you at the end of this episode, the knowledge of where your time and attention should be placed if you wish to preserve your health span. Yeah, see, this is one of those things where, look, first of all, this is not medical advice. It just simply isn't. We're just two lads having a chat about this stuff. However, there are some commonalities here and while we discuss a lot of this stuff in general while talking about oh here's our you know good nutrition practices good exercise practices good lifestyle practices it is quite illuminating to see why those things are important in terms of oh this is helping towards this disease process or oh this is what we should be doing when you know we've done our risk stratification of our own uh, family history or you know our environment or whatever it is and it's like oh these things are more likely for me or my immediate relatives are there any habits any things that we can be doing to hopefully mitigate some of that risk you know because look even though we're talking about prevention there's no way i can say that oh you do this one habit or these different habits and you will 100 prevent x y or z disease from happening there's no way i can say that right however by doing these different health uh, habits, you are hopefully reducing your risk of getting any of these diseases or dying from any of these diseases, right? So this is more about risk mitigation rather than telling you what to do, uh, giving you medical advice. Like I'm not your doctor. Go to your doctor if you have really got concerns about this stuff, but we can still share with you some general good practices. So as Gary said, there are a number of things that we've identified in the last few podcasts about, oh, these are the major killers of humans 
especially by number of de- deaths um, rather than the age categorization that we did. I think it was the last episode or maybe the episode before that. We're like, okay, it does actually change depending on what age bracket you fall under. However, when we're talking about absolute magnitude, i.e. the numbers each year, we can still identify some top killers. Now, these are more prevalent later in life. A lot, Well, a lot of them are more prevalent later in life, um, which is important to understand because what you're doing earlier in life does impact your risk for these things later in life. So the vast majority of people listening to this podcast fall in the age category of 18 to 40. So you can be doing a lot of stuff to help yourself, your future self, you know? So just to reiterate the top killers, we had ischemic heart disease, stroke, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, trachea, bronchus, and lung cancers, Alzheimer's disease, and other forms of dementia, diabetes, and kidney disease, right? Now, there are some other things in there, as Gary identified, i.e., you know, accidents, injuries, suicide, etc. However, they're not in the top, well, they are in the top killers, but they're not in this top killers list because they're not really as preventable from the stuff that we want to talk about, you know? Um, but anyway, Gary, let's actually just start off with the biggest the biggest killer, the big boy, you know, heart disease. We've done an entire podcast series before on heart disease. So we're not going to completely reiterate everything in that. But when we're talking about heart disease, what are we mainly concerned about? You know, what, what, what's the, what's actually killing us? Is it the, you know, blood lipids we should be concerned about? Is it blood pressure? Like what's, what's the story there? Like what's killing us? What do we need to focus on? Yeah, so you can t- you can kind of think of the types of heart disease that we're concerned about here in, in, in kind of two different ways. Um, and they're, they're related, so it's not so simple. But one is what you would call atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So this is where we're concerned about the buildup of arterial plaques. Um, they can occur elsewhere other than just your heart. But when you get the buildup of a plaque in your artery, for example, in your coronary arteries of the heart, What this leads to is the obstruction of blood flow um, to the heart that can lead to symptoms such as angina, for example, and it can also lead to um, increased risk of you actually having a heart attack or a cardiovascular event. So if you begin to develop atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, we know that there have been processes over a number of years that have contributed to the development of those plaques. So that's kind of one side of it where you're talking about sort of a plumbing problem, you know, effectively you've blocked the pipes that are serving the heart. And as a result, the heart isn't able to do its job as well. The other kind of type of cardiovascular disease that you'd be concerned about would be related to heart failure. And there's types of heart failure that would be related to um, certain genetic conditions. You know, you can have um, different types of cardiomyopathies that aren't necessarily um, preventable. That might be the result of your genetics or congenital malformations, et cetera. But the big thing that we're concerned about here when it comes to heart failure, um, or one of the biggest things anyway, is is high blood pressure. So rather than us just talking about the, the plumbing or the piping in terms of blood supply to the heart, what we're thinking about here is the amount of pressure that your heart is on, under over the long term. So if you've got really high blood pressure, 
what ends up happening is your heart effectively is constantly working over and over and over again to try to fight against that pressure effectively. Um, and that leads to over time, the development of heart failure. And there's many different subcategories of heart failure and classifications, but that's really beyond the scope here. I just want you to be able to think of the fact that one, you can have a plumbing problem where you've effectively not got uh, adequate blood supply because of a blockage in an artery. Then you've got a, effectively a, a muscular failure problem over time where the amount of workload for the heart at its current capacity is simply too great. And as a result, we can end up with complications such as increased risk of, of clotting, for example. And you can also end up with things like uh, atrial fibrillation or arrhythmias, where you get kind of chaotic heart rhythm, which again can lead to increased risks of, of clots, for example. And you can end up with a number of other problems, such as pulmonary edema, where you get a buildup of fluid um, within the lungs, buildup of fluid in the legs or the abdomen, for example. You'll, have, you'll see that with elderly people very often, that they'll have um, this kind of water retention in their ankles. And that's the result of heart failure um, and, and many other um, sequelae as a result of that. But fundamentally, they're the two kind of categories. And if you think about that, then what you have to ask yourself is, how would we kind of address a, a plumbing problem? That might be the first question. And the, this comes back to something that we've discussed at great length uh, in, in the past, and that is managing your blood lipids. So in particular, we go on to that, yeah, go ahead. I always conceptualize this and it is actually grossly uh you know simplified but basically we've got an issue with either the plumbing system the, the pipes or the motor the actual thing that's driving the water well in this case blood around the system you know and they're clearly related because you could have blocked pipes you know and as a result there's more strain on the actual motor itself you know you can have higher blood pressure that is as a consequence of having more uh, plaque built up in different areas right but you can also have it the other way around in terms of the motor is pumping way too much water and now you're getting damage to the veins the arteries and as a result of that damage there's potential plaque building up as a uh, protective mechanism you know and um, so that's the way i simplify it in my mind i'm like look we've just got this motor i'm sure we've all seen some sort of you know industrial process where it's like oh we've got this motor even a you know cog wheel or whatever and it's like okay it's pumping it's pumping the water out if there's a lot of water to be pumped out you can imagine it's kind of straining you know it's like you know throwing off a load of different gases the gas is going black the thing is shaking around because it's pumping really hard and then you've also definitely seen some sort of blocked pipe in some shape manner or for, form you know it could even be a straw you know if you drink like a smoothie and you're trying to suck the smoothie up and it's really thick you're like oh it's not not coming through there's a little bit coming through but oh there's actually a huge seed or whatever stuck in the straw so i'm not able to to drink it you know so we've all seen it in a very simplified way but like you said gary what does that actually mean how do we actually go about dealing with this you know because it's not as simple as a, a clogged pipe that you can just get a i know a pipe cleaner in and clean or get some sort of hose or scraper device in and, and clean it out and it's not like you can well you can but it's not like you can very easily just replace the motor you know yeah i mean obviously in, in extreme circumstances there there are interventions to 
you know, replace blocked arteries or um, different interventions to stent them open um, or clear them out, so to speak. But for the most part, what we're concerned about is the actual prevention decades in advance of ever getting to that point. And one of the biggest contributors to um, the development of these arterial plaques over time is high levels of um, LDL cholesterol in particular, um, generally known as bad cholesterol. There's a lot more nuance there than just you know simplifying it like that but 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 it's good enough for most people and um, high ldl cholesterol in particular high ldl particle number and high apob containing lipoproteins if you wanted to be very specific there's various other um sub subcategories of blood lipids that you might be concerned about such as lp little a even like the the types of hdl cholesterol that you have your triglycerides etc but in general what you're looking for is that you've got low ldl that's what you would generally want um, as a general rule of thumb you want higher hdl as a general rule of thumb and you want your triglycerides to be low as well the greatest risk that we see is when people have the opposite pattern to that, which would, which would be um, atherogenic dyslipidemia is what it's referred to as. And we see this very frequently in um, diabetics and people with insulin resistance or obesity um, in particular. And in this situation, what you often end up with is high LDL, you've got low HDL and you've got high triglycerides. And if you break it down into, again, various subcategories of that, such as the particle size and things like that, you see other features as part of that pattern as well that are not very good um, for your plumbing long term. So ultimately, the, the, the big preventable thing or modifiable factor here is primarily LDL cholesterol. Um, and that's something that can be reduced through the reduction of saturated fat intake in the diet. Um, how much you want to reduce this depends on your baseline risk. For example, if you already had um, a, an LDL that was in a, a healthy place, then you might be aiming for somewhere between, let's say, 10 and 15% of calories uh, from saturated fat per day. Whereas if you were someone in a higher risk category, your LDL was already quite high, you know, you have a significant family history, going less than 10% uh, per day and, and even lower um, would generally be something that you'd be trying to aim for. So it's not necessarily something that you need to micromanage a whole pile, because what we find with our clients is that once we're making kind of smart enough food choices, most of the time people tend to do well, you know, so we try to choose leaner cuts of meat a lot of the time. We'll try to um, cook with um, oils or add oils to salads and things like that, or sources of fat that are generally um, unsaturated. Um, an example of that would be, you know, having, I don't know, nut butter on your toast instead of a load of butter, for example, that would be one switch that will reduce uh, your saturated fat intake. So they're the types of things that we're introducing for people. The other thing that can make a big difference here is your uh, fiber intake. So fiber generally leads to reductions in, in cholesterol as well. So this is something that we introduce for many different reasons anyway, you know, reducing colorectal cancer risk and, and many other things such as increasing satiety and helping with fat loss. So we're always trying to get our clients to get their fiber intake up. And this can be achieved by, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables. It can be achieved by eating more beans and legumes and whole grains, etc. But generally we're aiming for somewhere between 10 and 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories in your diet. So for example, 
I'm eating around 3000 calories per day. I want to be aiming for somewhere between 30 and 45 grams of fiber per day. I'd be pretty happy with that. Thereafter, what you're trying to achieve is sort of taken care of by what we've already said. So if you're trying to uh, keep your fiber up, you're probably eating more fruits and vegetables. And this also allows you to get in adequate antioxidants, micronutrients, and phytochemicals, all of which can also support reductions in cardiovascular disease risk. So eat your fruit and veg. It's very basic advice, but it basically improves your risk or reduces your risk of everything we're going to talk about today. Furthermore, go ahead. On that as well, it's important to note on those last two, because you have to eat your fruit and veg for all these other benefits, these antioxidants, micronutrients, and phytochemicals, you can't just take a fiber supplement and reach your 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories, you know? So you can't just do that. Unfortunately, like, look, that would be the, the, easiest intervention now i'm not saying you can't use a fiber supplement like i use a fiber supplement myself i take some psyllium husk purely because i want to top up my uh, fiber intake even though i eat a lot of fruit and veg and whatever i do find my blood lipids respond favorably if i'm taking about five to ten grams of psyllium husk per day right but it's in the context of doing all the other stuff as well you know so that's the first thing i want to say you can't just take a fiber supplement because you're missing out on some of these antioxidants these micronutrients and phytochemicals that are also playing a role here right but conversely you can't just take some sort of antioxidant supplement you know you can't just go oh, i take a you know a, a multivitamin so i'm all good on the micronutrient front you know like that doesn't seem to be as protective against heart disease you know like you can't just be like oh yeah well i eat 20 percent of my calories from saturated fat but I actually take in a lot of antioxidants. So it's all good, bro. You know, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case, you know? So I just wanted to make that clear because oftentimes people hear you need to get adequate fiber and you need to get adequate antioxidants, micronutrients and phytochemicals. And straight away they're on some bulk, uh, you know, supplement company website. And they're like, Oh, I'll order this and I'll order this. You really kind of need to eat it from food. And like, I wish it wasn't the way if it was otherwise, I'd be selling you all kinds of supplements. You know, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is the one you go. Here's our, you know, fucking affiliate link. And here's the, our own triage brand supplement or whatever. Yeah, they can be helpful, but it's only really in the context of doing the, the diet stuff right first that it really becomes helpful. Absolutely. And and the next thing kind of moving on from that, and, and obviously this, this ties in with your point that the overall diet is what's important. And that is body weight management. So ideally here, what you're trying to achieve is keeping your body fat lower. Okay. It doesn't mean you have to be absolutely shredded to the bone, but generally we see as one moves on through the overweight to obesity spectrum, particularly as insulin resistance begins to develop, hypertension begins to develop, et cetera, we're going to have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, this goes for both, both heart failure and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So trying to stay leaner throughout your life is generally advisable. With that said, you don't want to be one of these people who's such a proponent of fasting and low calorie diets that you also sacrifice your muscle mass along the way. Because if you're doing that, you also have a lower probability of surviving a cardiovascular event. So you want to have muscle mass in your old age. You want to have a bit of weight. You don't want to be, you know, 5% body fat and 60 kilos at, you know, 190 centimeters tall. It's not ideal. Okay. So there's a balance there to be struck over time. And that generally goes along with everything else that we advise that you want to be strength training throughout your life. You want to, you know, have periods of time where you are focusing on gaining muscle mass and gaining a bit of weight 
And then you want to pull back that body fat a touch just to stay within a healthy range. So all in line with what we generally advise. And now, finally, why we always say calorie appropriate. Like we're not saying there has to be a calorie deficit and that doesn't have to be a surplus. It has to be a calorie appropriate for you, your goals and your risk tolerance and risk stratification. You know, like when you're younger, you might be able to get away with doing a fucking turbo bulk. You know, it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter because you're not going to spend the next 30 years relatively lean you know it probably did some damage but ultimately in the grand scheme of things it's not it's not the the be all and end all right but if you're eating in excess for 30 years which is what most people actually do that's more of a risk factor you know yes sir absolutely and then i suppose just the final thing then on on the blood lipid side of things and this is a general trend that we'll be coming back to but that is that you know if you've done all of these things and your risk, whether assessed through, I don't know, your, your, your blood lipids, um, for example, you've tested your LDL or you've got a coronary artery calcium score or something else, you've got some sort of intervention or investigation from your doctor and your doctor saying, look, your risk is still high. There's absolutely an advantage to potentially going down the medical route as well, even if you are young. So things like statins and other um, drugs, generally, you're going to be looking at statins as first line, but there are other drugs available as well. They do reduce cardiovascular events long term, and it would be wise if you've got that risk that is does not seem to be um, reduced through lifestyle alone. And that can absolutely be the case. Um, there's many different uh, genes that can contribute. Um, both single genes and multiple genes together, uh, whether you've one copy or two copies, all of these things kind of fall under the bracket of familial hypercholesterolemia. And if you've got a, a level of a cholesterol of, you know, 200 to 250 milligrams per deciliter, it's unlikely that you're going to get that down to a low enough level that you're going to get um, low cardiovascular disease risk through diet alone. So while diet can make a difference, and um, while lifestyle can make a difference, often medication does have to be part of the picture, particularly if there's significant um, family risk there. So I'd be concerned about that personally, if I was thinking, if I was looking through my family history and I saw that, oh, look, my, my uncle, my grandfather, even my grandmother, et cetera, that they all had cardiovascular events at like 40, 50, you know, I'd, I'd be more concerned in those cases. Um, so don't be afraid to take that step if it's required. And that's important to understand because as far as I'm aware, um, while the Irish are a fantastic population, you know, O1B, L21 haplogroup, it is, you know, arguably the best haplogroup. Well, I would argue it. And Gary, you would also argue it because absolutely you know, we're in there together. Um, but they do actually have quite a high percentage of some of these different mutations that, you know, increase your risk for heart disease. And this is the reason it's such a high incidence in Ireland, just like with uh, cystic fibrosis, is because we are a relatively homogenous grouping of people you know uh, relatively homogenous in terms of there was a lot of inbreeding basically going on <laughs> in ireland after the initial waves of invasion you know you can read the, the lower gava if you want to take that as gospel you know the book of invasions of ireland i don't take it as gospel it's probably before pre-celt anyway which you know not or one bl21 master race but either way there is a higher uh prevalence of heart disease and heart related mutation and heart related gene mutations that are related to heart disease in Ireland. So it is something you should be paying attention to. And it's the same in England um, and you know Scotland and Wales as well. Not as high a prevalence as Ireland, as far as I'm aware, but 
you know, they were, they were also Or1B people, even though there was a little bit less uh, inbreeding between them because of a few different invasions. But even the people that invaded them were Or1A and Or1Bs. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of uh, similarity in the genes. But anyway, we'll move on to the next thing. Basically, what Gary was saying is, you know, if medication has to be part of the plan, medication has to be part of the plan. There shouldn't be this stigma around it. I know in the health fitness world, people are like, oh, we need to get people off their, their medications. But like, realistically, that's not necessary, you know? But anyway, yeah. the next thing then, Gary, blood pressure. Yeah, and I mean, the, 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 the similar point stands here. But first and foremost, with blood pressure, like you want to take care of the basics. So making sure you're well hydrated. Okay, you're getting adequate water intake per day. Sometimes thirst is reliable. Sometimes thirst is not reliable. As a rule of, rule of thumb, we like our clients to start by getting somewhere around 40 milliliters of water per kilogram of body weight per day. So if you're 80 kilos, you're getting around three to 3.5 liters of water per day. Now, there's going to be massive variation there. Climate, time of year, how much you're exercising, what type of exercise, like the amount I would sweat if I went out for a run today um, in Ireland versus me going to jiu-jitsu tonight, you know, in my gi, sweating loads. There's totally different uh, hydration requirements there. Just let's be honest, both of us, I don't actually sweat that much. Like I don't definitely don't sweat as much as you, but I soak my gi straight through. Wrenched. Absolutely straight through. So like if you were to wring that out, there's definitely a liter of water in that. 100%. <laughs> you know? So obviously, like Gary's saying, this has to be changed based on what you are doing. You know, we're looking at that kind of 40 milliliter, 40 milliliters per kilogram as a kind of baseline. Now, the thing about that as well is, you know, if you are following the advice in the previous one and you're eating a lot of fresh fruit, veg, that does actually have quite a high water content, you know? So there is a little bit of that contributing to your overall intake. However, we generally just kind of go, okay, try to think of your 40 milliliters per kilogram as the actual water you're drinking. And if you're getting more from other sources of the diet, happy days. I would rather we consume a little bit too much and we have to dial back a little bit because you're like, look, all my urinations are completely clear <laughs> and I'm doing it multiple times per day. Like, okay, we are getting definitely enough. We can pull this back a little bit. That's a better place to be in than going, yeah, my urine is literally like maple syrup, you know? Um, it's kind of actually brown. It's almost black and red, you know? It's like, okay, look, you're definitely not consuming enough water, <laughs> you know? I'd rather be in the, the over-consuming water category rather than the under-consuming. Not to say that there aren't issues with vastly over-consuming water, but in terms of this context, it's a little bit of a better place to be in. Yeah, because, I mean, as you get towards the, the extremes, you know, for example, six, eight, 10 plus liters of water per day, you actually do run into a genuine risk of, of hyponatremia and potentially death. You know, there are actually cases of people literally hydrating themselves to death. So, um, but that's well, not going to happen. Well, we if don't charge, uh, you know, uh, charge for water in nightclubs anymore in the UK or in Ireland because people were just taking a load of fucking pingers and, you know, sweating to bits. And then obviously they're like, oh, I'm not paying for a water. Like who the fuck would pay for a water at a club? It's literally tap water, you know? And as a result of that, you know, they weren't consuming enough water. There's issues with that. But obviously on the converse side of things, like you can drink way too much water if you've been on a lot of pingers as well. Uh, and then you're like, oh yeah, look, I'm actually sweating loads. I'm going to hydrate. And now you're sweating loads and you drank six liters of water because you're high out of your mind. There's an issue there. And obviously there's also those other ones that they used to do, like, you know, 
water drinking contests and yes. and the like you know not ideal from a physiology standpoint yeah um so yeah look drink your water not too much not too little it's it's actually not that complicated people you know get real complex with it the only time you might need to be a bit more nuanced about your hydration is if you have like i don't know you're running in the desert for three days or something you need to be a bit fine-tuned it a bit more for the most part thirst and positive environment environmental factors like actually having water with you um, at all times is they they go well together um, one of the things that people will say sometimes is that oh it's just down to thirst thirst is really reliable but like a lot of the time if people don't have water with them, then that mild little bit of thirst might be mightn't be something that's sufficient for them to go and get water. So you can end up getting relatively dehydrated then. But anyway, adequate water intake. Next thing related to water is um, reducing your salt intake. Okay, in general, um, population levels of salt are probably too high, or at least would benefit from being reduced. This is something that has improved over time. To be fair. Um, because of changes in the food supply. Um, you know, a lot of people have access to things like low sodium salt these days. If you're cooking more meals at home um, and you're not adding lots of soy sauce or salt to your dishes and stuff, you're generally able to keep the salt intake down. If you're eating out a lot, you're eating lots of processed foods, prepackaged meals, etc. You very often consume a lot more salt than you might think. And what you're generally aiming for here is probably less than five grams of salt per day, okay? That comes in at around, I think, 3,000 milligrams of sodium. Generally, you want to, if you can get down to, uh, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams of sodium or less, you're doing a great job. Um, you're doing pretty well there. And along with that, then, increasing potassium intake probably has some benefits too. And again, this goes back to our previous advice related to fruits and vegetables. If you eat a lot of fruit and veg, you're going to have a high enough um, level of potassium in your diet. Um, you may not need to supplement with anything else. Generally, population uh, potassium intake is too low and sodium is too high. So if you're reducing the amount of salt you're adding to your meals and increasing the amount of fruits and vegetables you're eating per day, you're doing a great job. Um, one thing to note there as well is that what I was going to say, um, obviously there's except there's the exception that everyone brings up and that's that, oh, you know, I'm an athlete. I sweat so much. But the important thing is that one of the benefits of exercise is the fact that you lose salt in your sweat. Like that's one of the reasons that exercise reduces your blood pressure and helps to manage your blood pressure. So don't try to compensate for every bit of salt that you've lost in your sweat you know it is obviously true that if you're at the extremes like for example i think if someone's training jiu-jitsu and losing two liters of of water in their in their sweat in each session when they're in the gi for example and they're doing that seven nights a week then that could be something that you need to pay attention to if you're eating a very clean diet you know if you're eating a diet that's very bland you know no processed foods no junk you're not adding any salt to your meals no sauces you actually might need to increase your salt intake for performance but if you're eating a diet that's similar to most people and you're training 45 minutes a day you know you're probably going to benefit from reducing it rather than increasing it so obviously there's individualization there once again well, furthermore i've literally only had one client that I've ever been like, you know what? Actually, I think salt needs to go a bit higher. Yeah. Very inclined who sweated a lot, you know? And it's like that, like that's not the, the vast majority. Like, and as I say, a vegetarian, like they were making all their own food, you know, they weren't adding any salt, any other sauces or anything, you know, it's like, 
there was very low salt in that diet. They were getting a little bit cramps and, you know, a few other things I was kind of like, oh, like this might actually be a little bit of a low sodium issue. Added a little bit of actually a low sodium salt because, um, you know, we can always do a little bit more potassium. Um, the issues went away. Now, I can't say that that was specifically the sodium or the potassium, but ultimately the issues went away with that intervention. But ultimately, look, I've coached hundreds, you know, maybe even thousands of people um, and, you know, one out of that. You know, so it's not not a huge issue as people make it out to be. And the thing about it is, look, we have so many salt conservation uh, or salt, salt retention mechanisms within the body. Like it, I should say sodium, not salt, that it's just not an issue. You know, whereas with the potassium, like we don't have any of those things. Like, you know, if you need more salt, like your body will start going, OK, let's produce some signals that make you taste or give you a, a hunger for some salt. Like you'd be like, oh, I need something salty right? Like we have different mechanisms to do that. We don't have any of that for potassium because traditionally in the diet, potassium was so high. Like you can imagine like even like a potato, like we only used to eat like tubers and roots and whatever else, like super high potassium content. So we've never needed historically, you know, in our evolution to conserve or retain potassium. But nowadays the, the, you know, the, whatever thing is called, the tables have flipped. If I could even speak, and we have way too much sodium and way too little potassium. And it's always traditionally been the opposite way around. Like potassium was you know, easy to get in the diet and sodium wasn't as much. Look, in nature, this is why animals go to like salt licks. You know, that's, that's where hunters get them because it's you know, an ideal position. They're like, all right, I need to go to a salt lick. Loads of different animals are going to go there. So, you know, it's an ideal hunting spot. But either way, uh, on top of that, um, I just wanted to say that supplementing with potassium is not always the best way to go about things especially it can cause issues for some people we won't get into that too much here but you know that's why they generally keep the potassium like tablets or you know capsules or whatever below one gram even though you know we could argue that 15 grams is a requirement uh, per day for humans but there are issues if you're going to have this like basically really fast delivery system um, in a supplement. So again, this just goes to one of these things where look the best way to do it is to get it through the diet. You can't just go oh I need to add more potassium to my diet. I'm going to get a supplement, you know, like we could argue that, you know, adding salt to your meal, like we always advocate that like brand low salt, but it's basically just a low sodium, higher potassium, uh, brand of salt. Um, like that you could argue is a supplement, but you know, then you could argue sodium itself, <laughs> like the salt people add to their diet is a supplement. Um, but that's generally what we prefer. We prefer a high potassium salt, like that you actually salt your food with, and then get the rest from the diet. And ultimately the really, the only intervention we're doing is bringing salt, sodium, like salt intake down. Check. Yes, sir. Um, next point, cardiovascular training, and we can broaden this to, to training in general. You know, um, if you're not resistance training, resistance training can also reduce your blood pressure. But if you're already resistance training, adding some additional um, cardio type exercise or conditioning, aerobic training is something that's likely to help with reducing your blood pressure. Um, and I see good results with this um, with clients. Um, one of the things that also, you know, helps to reduce blood pressure is, is kind of similar to what we said about heart disease in general, and that's body weight management. So, you know, keeping, um, staying leaner effectively, you know, being in a deficit for a period of time tends to reduce blood pressure. Um, and obesity is fairly strongly linked with the increase in population prevalence of, of hypertension. So if you want to reduce your blood pressure, um, addressing obesity is also something that is uh, likely to be helpful. Now, the important thing is that 
we're mentioning blood, blood, blood lipids, we're mentioning blood pressure, you know, here's how to reduce these things. But there's also benefits of exercise and other lifestyle interventions that go above and beyond just their effect on these mediators, you know, so you might look at exercise and ask, what does it do to blood lipids? And it doesn't actually do that much. You can get maybe a mild increase um, in HDL. You get a mild change maybe in triglycerides. But overall, it's not going to do that much for your blood lipids, but it does significantly reduce your cardiovascular disease risk. Exercise probably has a bit more of a potent effect on blood pressure. It also has effects on the vascular system um, and the muscle quality of the heart itself, um, including its ability to, you know, consistently pump over time and as a result, reduce risk of heart failure. But the benefits are fairly um, general in that the impact, exercise impacts all of these systems, even down to things like your ability to sustain um, a period of anaerobic activity. So for example, if you're you've got a very high level of fitness and your body's gotten used to very stressful situations that uh, such as like interval training on, a, on an assault bike let's say that also prepares you for things like if you do have a period of um, low oxygen availability or low blood flow whether it be a, a heart attack or um, just a lower level angina if you experience those events you've you know bit greater greater resilience as a result of your exercise habits over time. So exercise in general is going to reduce your heart disease risk. I think most people are probably familiar with that. Um, another thing as well is, is, is good quality sleep and stress management is also something that's quite helpful um, over time. Again, there's effects that are specific and there's effects that are general. So for example, if you're sleep deprived and highly stressed, you're probably going to have a higher level of sympathetic nervous system activation um, over time. You're probably going to have higher levels of cortisol, probably going to have higher levels uh, of blood pressure. You're going to have poor appetite regulation and potentially higher risk of obesity and insulin resistance. So all these things come together to increase risk of cardiovascular disease. Alcohol is also something that has an effect here that's really important because people often talk about alcohol in terms of like the tabloids, you know, articles that you'll see about drink one glass of wine per week to reduce your cardiovascular disease risk and all this sort of stuff. But in reality, alcohol probably has a mostly negative uh, effect on cardiovascular disease risk, particularly in quantities consumed in Ireland. Like if you're consuming one to three drinks per week, let's say, or you're having a glass of wine every other night or something like that, you know, you can argue back and forth about whether or not that's going to be positive, negative, or neutral. Um, I'd probably lean in the negative direction maybe, but probably not a big deal. The thing about um, Ireland in particular is that most people consume vastly more alcohol than that. And alcohol is a very potent trigger of um, arrhythmias in particular. So atrial fibrillation, and as a result, clotting and stroke risk, very significant risk there from um, alcohol and also many other um, things such as dilated cardiomyopathy, which is one of those kind of things that can lead to heart failure, like I discussed earlier, and other um, factors that can increase your risk. So in general, limiting your consumption of alcohol is probably wise. I would start by trying to keep my alcohol consumption within the, the general um, weekly guidelines. You can look those up um, and that will you know help you out. The thing about looking them up, and the reason I say that is because units 
and the types of drink that you consume yourself might make that a bit more confusing. So look it up, varies between men and women, and obviously the types of drink that you consume impact how much you're, you're going to drink. So the final thing there is just medication as needed. We already said this in relation to blood lipids. If you want to reduce your heart disease risk, there's a couple of different medications that might be helpful um, depending on your baseline risk and depending on if you've uh, sustained an event over time. So for example, if you've had a heart attack already versus if you haven't had a heart attack, and even if your cholesterol levels and everything else is the same, the doses of medications and types of medications prescribed would be different. You know, um, blood pressure medications come into it, um, antiplatelet and anti-clotting medications, et cetera, et cetera. It depends on your individual situation. Speak to your doctor. 100%. And look, the reason we spend so much time talking about the heart disease stuff is because a big that, killer. Yeah, like first of all, it's the big killer, right? But then second of all, a lot of the stuff that we just covered there, there's so much crossover with the next few things that we're going to cover. So we're going to be able to go through these next few things a lot quicker because a lot of the stuff we just covered it's the same for this. You know, the mechanisms may be different, but the actual habit you need to engage in is the same. So look, the next big killer will go to airway cancers. That's why I'm just broadly categorizing them as, you know, but airway cancers, Gary. So how do we prevent airway cancers? Because we've talked about this before. And generally the cancers, these are the ones that were kind of like, look, there's just a high degree of look involved in this, you know, the look of your genetics, the look of your environment. And while, yeah, there are a few different habits that we can engage in, like you can still do all the good habits and still get cancer you know it's a it's a it's basically a lottery here you know it's not a nice lottery but it is basically a lottery however having said that there are still a few different things that we can do and we can look at in a preventative per, uh, perspective so airway cancers excuse me what are we doing gary yeah so with airway cancers what we're talking about here is basically cancers of the oropharynx so if you look this up you'll probably be referred to a page for example the cdc have a good one about oropharyngeal um, cancers you can get more information there um there's a number of different things that you can do to reduce your risk a big one that's probably pretty obvious if you've thought about it is reducing um smoking or stopping smoking more importantly um if you're smoking very clearly you've got direct exposure um in the uh, oral cavity in the pharynx and obviously in the trachea the lungs etc to the um, carcinogenic um, compounds. So you've got that direct exposure. And as a result, you tend to see an increased uh, risk of, of airway cancers associated with um, smoking. So reduce smoking. It's a very good idea. Stop smoking. Even better idea. Okay. Um, I should also for, mention that also applies for heart disease risk. We didn't talk about it there. Yes, absolutely. It also applies for heart disease. You know, smoking is just not beneficial. <laughs> if you want to not die uh, from heart disease. Yeah, absolutely. Would not recommend. Um, the next thing then is, is avoiding alcohol as well. Again, like one of the interesting things, I think when you start to talk about cancers is that you've sort of got like the, like what is interacting with that area? You know, that's one way to think about it in a very simple sense. Like what compounds is this area of the body being exposed to? So for example, when you think of the skin, sun exposure, okay. That's something that's direct. But there's also kind of more general factors. So you've got your general health exposures, 
Um, like for example, smoking can impact things beyond the lung, you know, the heart, for example, um, with cancers, you're thinking of what's affecting the area and then what's affecting general health. So with, uh, airway cancers and oral cancers, you're thinking about, right. Smoking, um, alcohol as well as something that's being, that's exposing the area directly, um, carcinogens in the air or toxins in the air, for example, in the workplace environment, in the home, um, running in a polluted area, you can check the air quality in your area and the pollution and all that sort of stuff. And you could, you know, curate your running route as a result. All these types of things are modifying the types of exposures that might impact you um, directly. Uh, and then you're thinking about, right, what are the exposures that I could um, prevent that will improve my systemic health and potentially have uh, local effects as well? For example, if you're increasing your fruit and vegetable intake, you're going to reduce your risk of oropharyngeal cancers. Um, one of the, the, the things that runs throughout as a consistent trend when you talk about cancer is that fruit and vegetable intake tends to have a, a protective effect. So that's something that's uh, probably wise and continues to come up with every disease that we discuss. So eat your fruit and veg, right? Another thing that's important with oropharyngeal cancers is that although you may have heard of HPV, human papillomavirus, talked about in the past, primarily related to cervical cancer, it actually also increases, and I say it, there's many different types of HPV. Some of them are particularly carcinogenic, um, but you, the risk runs beyond cervical cancer. So anal cancers um, or pharyngeal cancers in this case, penile cancers as well. Um, there's many different uh, cancers that HPV can increase risk, your risk of. And one of the things that you can do here is get HPV vaccination. Now, up until I think, think two years ago, this was run, run primarily in first year of secondary school in Ireland for um, girls only. But now the program has also switched to boys as well. So boys as well in their um, first year of secondary school also receive or have the option to receive HPV vaccination. So that's something that's advisable for both sexes. Um, because as I said, you know, there's crossover there between um, the risks, you know, there's the female genitalia and also the male genitalia, but then you've also got um, risks associated with other parts of the body, such as the oropharynx. Okay. Um, so HPV, HPV vaccination advisable there. And that's something that comes up again in the next point. Do you have anything to touch on with airway before I move to? No, I just want to say, just to make it clear that the reason we're saying HPV in terms of airway cancers is because people have oral sex, you know, like <laughs> it can seem like you're like, why is he bringing this up? But we're talking about the genitals here you know we're like oh there's you know hpv and you know we think of oh genitals oh that makes sense but you have to remember that humans like we have sex in many different ways you know so where do those genitals go or what other organs do they interact with oh they interact with these other organs hpv potential risk here cancer risk here and i just wanted to finally also say on the you know airway cancer stuff like there is potential benefit to being more cardiovascularly fit just in general in terms of benefiting from being able to deal with uh cancer overall and um, especially aerobic fitness but also in terms of stuff like having more muscle mass and that's obviously not related to like aerobic training necessarily more so resistance training but basically you're making your body more resilient in general right but obviously especially with you know as gary said earlier on like if you're trying to improve your aerobic fitness and you're going out running and you're in this like high polluted area you know i don't know you're in beijing or somewhere in china or something and literally you're running through smog you know like 
it's probably like the the pros and cons they're probably not in your favor you know so you have to be smart with that stuff uh, as well you know and um, but you know and it is my bias i just think you know training does a lot of things and even if it's not be- you know benefiting the disease process specifically it's making your body more resilient in general which is ideal especially if you're going to have to undergo stuff like chemotherapy where you know maybe your appetite is gone or you're not able to you know, your bed bound or whatever, like you want to have a reserve of strength and of fitness in general, you know, um, do you want anything else to say on that Gary? No, no, absolutely. Train your ass off. Fantastic. Which brings us to the next one, which is colorectal and anal cancers. <laughs> um, so take it away, Gary, cause there's a lot of crossover here. And then there's also a lot of crossover with other habits in, in general. Yeah. Huge, huge crossover here, guys. So, you know, we've already mentioned, boost your fiber intake, eat lots of fruit and veg. Okay. That's that they're the two things that we've kind of been repeating throughout this episode. And that also goes for colorectal cancer. Again, coming back to that point that I mentioned previously, you know, is there, is there something uh, that's a local exposure and is there something that's a systemic exposure? So it's probably both in these, in this case that you've got, if you've got a local exposure to um, higher fiber intake and fruit and veg intake that can uh, sometimes reduce some of the carcinogenic effects of um, other compounds. So for example, if you've got, um, it's, let's say carcinogenic unit X in the diet, but you've got high fiber intake, that might potentially lead to greater excretion of that, that won't be hanging around then in your gut as a result and having its carcinogenic effects. So um, obviously the, the pathophysiology of colorectal cancer is beyond the scope here, but just remember fiber, fruit and veg, bump them up. Okay, get, get your variety in different types of fiber as well is probably something that's wise to think about um, and consider the diet as a whole. The reason the diet as a whole is so important here as well is that it's not just about the protective factors, but also the factors that increase risk. So for example, processed meat um, in particular um, is something that really does increase your risk of colorectal cancer, as does uh, red meat in general. If you were to you know, create a hierarchy there, You'd start by reducing the amount of processed meats in your diet. So for example, maybe you're someone from uh, Eastern Europe and there's just a lot of, you know, sausage type meats and processed meats in your diet, lots of fatty meats and things like that, that can significantly increase your risk. So you would start with that, choosing leaner cuts of meat then. And if you wanted to, you know, do the absolute best um, possible job, you try to get your red meat uh, intake down to lean red meats a couple of times per week is what you'd be aiming for. I think the recommendation typically is less than 70 grams of red meat per day, something like that. Um, 50 to 70, I want to say. Yeah, 50 to 70. So, I mean, you don't have to think of it purely in terms of a daily thing. It could be that you have, uh, you know, some lean red meat twice a week. Like that's unlikely to be a significant factor if you're taking care of everything else. Okay, so. Just um, on that, look. I wish it wasn't the way like myself and Gary, look, we're Irishmen. Gary is a Kerryman. So yeah, I eat more than that. hundred percent. It pains us to say that you shouldn't be eating beef. Like literally beef is fantastic. But unfortunately in this context, in the context of colorectal and anal cancers, it potentially is a risk factor. So if you do have that in your risk stratification that we've talked about before, either a family history of this, you think you're at an increased risk, like, once you've ticked all the other boxes, this is definitely something you should be looking at, you know? And I say that with a heavy heart because look, I, there's very few people 
that like beef more than me, you know, but unfortunately in this context, look, red meat is not ideal. Yeah. Not ideal. You know, you don't have to cut it out entirely, but in general, try to choose leaner, higher quality cuts, um, combine it with plenty of fruits and vegetables and high fiber intake. And you'll probably be uh, mitigating quite a, a bit of damage in comparison to, you know, waking up every day and having six sausages fried with, you know, six rashers and a lot of black pudding and all this type of stuff. That's probably going to be the, the thing that's a, of concern for many people, um, particularly in Ireland and, and England, where we love our fry ups, you know. So anyway, um, that's that. That's the kind of primary dietary side of things. Obviously, smoking and drinking alcohol are also things that play into risk here. So um reducing yeah, your exposure. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be majoring in the minors i wouldn't be like oh i've reduced my red meat intake but you're still not eating fruit and veg and like i would in my mind i'd be like fruit and veg is a, a lower hanging fruit so to speak um that i'd be focusing on more drinking if you're drinking alcohol and you're like oh i've actually reduced my red meat intake down to next to nothing and you're still drinking like two liters of vodka a week i'd be like look you have your priorities backwards it's the alcohol that needs to go rather than the meat because there are still beneficial nutrients in meat there's no real beneficial nutrients there's in alcohol you know like i would be hard pressed for someone to be like this is why mechanistically alcohol is better for you than red meat i just cannot see it in general like especially because zinc is one of the greatest deficiencies in in the world along with iron you know and there are two things that red meat gives you you know um but anyway look we'll move on to the next one well we'll just finish that up by saying being physically active is beneficial again for most cancers and um, but especially in colorectal cancer it does seem to be uh, somewhat protective and then finally gary we go back to that hpv uh one um how do we prevent our risk or how do i reduce the risk of the hpv stuff yeah and in particular here is is anal cancer that that's a risk factor um hpv is a risk factor here so if you're having anal sex you know um, whether heterosexual or homosexual anal sex, there's significant increased risk here for anal cancers. Um, importantly as well, um, in like you might think that that's a derogatory when someone brings up anal sex, that it's a comment related to homosexuality. But in fact, anal sex among heterosexual couples is actually far more frequent than you'd expect. You know, um, in researching this podcast, I was looking up the frequency um in i think it's between 19, 1999 and 2016 in um females in their 20s who self-reported um having you know anal sex or receiving anal sex and the frequency is somewhere between like 20 and 40 percent um i think it was 41 percent was one of the estimates you know that's that's actually quite high um and there's a significant increased risk there for those women who have been receiving anal sex so Clearly, this is something that we should be thinking about. Sexual health is something that's, you know, really important. Obviously, there's many different things you can you can do to reduce risks associated with, associated with sexual health, you know, minimizing the amount of sexual partners, using contraception, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but here in particular, with anal cancers, avoiding anal sex or um, ensuring HPV vaccination or protection in the case that you are having anal sex would be wise. Yeah, 100%. And I would argue as well, 
because I did do a bit of research on this before. Um, well, I did a lot of research on this before because I was like, oh, well, look, we're going to go through all these different categories that, you know, potentially prevent it. And I was like, oh, avoid anal sex. I was like reading that. And I was kind of just thinking back being like, you know, and back in the day, they didn't use to let uh, like homosexual people or, you know, different sexualities donate blood and stuff. You know, it was like, oh, I was like, is this just another one of those things where it's kind of like a, it's like, oh, here's a, a medical way to kind of vilify yeah you know that and i was like oh i have to do a little bit more research into this and like yourself if it, i saw that you know arguably depending on where you're looking at america seems to have more uh, than europe but that could just be reporting could just be mm-hmm. studies or whatever but it, comparatively because there is there are more people that are heteronormative i suppose you'd say um there probably are probably maybe more people that are heteronormative having anal sex than there are people that are homosexual purely mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that there are more people that are heteronormative than there are that are like homosexual or, or whatever, you know? So it's not something that you need to be like, Oh, this is, this is only something that, you know, gay men need to, to yep. think about. No, it's, it's, it's most people, you know? Absolutely. Um... Anyway, next one, Gary, Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, this is, this is probably one of the ones that, again, it's like, oh, this is one of those disease processes that I just hate. You know, it's, it robs the, the person while their, like, physical being is still here, you know. And I always hate talking about, like, prevention in this context because it, it always makes it feel like, oh, you should have been doing these things. Why weren't you doing these things? But again, just like with the cancers, look, there's just a lot of bad luck involved in this stuff you know um and i say this as someone who has had multiple concussions um some less or more severe um and that is one of the things that increases your risk for alzheimer's and dementia uh, in, in general but anyway gary preventing alzheimer's and dementia how do we do it yeah like again like you said this is one of those kind of horrible disease processes where it's it's, it's a very dehumanizing condition, um, but also it's one of the things that they're just, there's not much to be done. You know, there's some medications that, you know, are, are present in, in Alzheimer's, but effectively all, all you're doing really is boosting acetylcholine levels kind of short term. That's kind of what you end up doing is basically you're trying to get the most out of the neurotransmitters um, and synapses that are kind of still functioning but you're not, you're not reversing um, the pathology, really. You're not really treating it, so to speak. You're just kind of, you know, getting the most out of what's left while sort of pre-saying that it's going to be progressive. You know, this is also one of those areas as well where there's kind of a lot of, you know, shady pharma stuff, you know, where there's been, you know, the drugs that have, you know, gone through the FDA over the last couple of years and stuff like that, that, you know, probably aren't going to go anywhere really in terms of significant effects uh, on Alzheimer's. Um, and there's been a lot less progress than I think most people would like um, in Alzheimer's disease, which is a shame. My own grandmother has very, very severe Alzheimer's, pretty much end stage Alzheimer's disease at this point. And like you said, it, 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 it takes the person out of their living body effectively. Um, it's very difficult for people to observe. So absolutely wouldn't want anyone to think that, um, you know, if your mother or grandmother or grandfather has Alzheimer's that, oh, it's because of how they lived. Because unfortunately, it's, it's just not so clear. It's, it's a lot less clear cut. We know risk factors, but the overall kind of pathophysiology risk and risk reduction, et cetera, is a lot less uh, kind of clear cut than, than something like, you know, uh, a plaque in an artery, for example. But with that said, 
there are things that you can do to reduce risk of Alzheimer's and uh, dementia generally. There are other types of dementia. Um, there's a lot of crossover in terms of the things that you can um, do to prevent or reduce risk. Um, and also some of them that relate to some of the other things we discussed previously. For example, with vascular dementia, you've got some crossover with uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors. So with that said, getting enough sleep is something that's really important. Okay. Sleep is a, is something that again is, is actually a lot less well understood than you would probably think. It's a very difficult thing to study, but some of the things that have been understood is that sleep is almost certainly a time for trying to clear up the mess that accumulates as the brain works all day long. Okay. So trying to get rid of metabolic waste products and things like that, that might be involved in increasing neurodegenerative disease risk over time. So you need to be sleeping enough in order to keep that kind of balance between the healthy working stuff in your brain and the byproducts that are, you know, uh, accumulate during that process. You know, if you think of your brain, like a busy factory, that's kind of always going, you know, if you're working in a busy factory and you're opening something out of the box and, you know, you cut the box open, you throw the box to the side and you say, all right, once, once we're done this shift, we, we're going to clean that up. Eventually over time, if you're not, you know, getting your time off, or in this case, you're not sleeping enough, that waste starts to accumulate very simplistic, but that is sort of what does happen um, when we sleep. And you can see you using that analogy because it's a perfect analogy for this, where like if you get four hours of sleep, yeah, you've tidied up the environment, you know, you're not going to trip over the boxes. But if you get eight hours of sleep, the factory is clean again, you know, or almost as clean as it could be, you know. So this is why it's important to get enough sleep of high quality, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not just to be like, oh, yeah, I got six hours of sleep. That's the bare minimum that I can get away with. It's like, yeah, okay, the factory is tidy, but it's not clean. You know, like you want to clean, you want to be able to eat your dinner off the floor. You know, that's the level of clean you want to that. And that's probably in the range of seven to nine hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. And one of the unfortunate things about Alzheimer's is that you end up in a vicious cycle where sleep quality deteriorates and then that makes the, the condition worse. So it's, yeah, tough old condition. Now, blood pressure management is also something that you can take care of please refer to the start of this podcast where we discuss blood pressure, but basically yeah, lower blood pressure generally going to be better exercising something that's huge. This is especially the case when it comes to, um, you know, preserving muscle function and activities of daily living into later life. So if you're um, able to stay on your feet for longer, you're able to catch yourself. If you happen to have a fall, prevent a hip fracture, et cetera, you're likely to prevent um, early mortality associated with Alzheimer's, but you're also um, going to uh, potentially slow down the disease process because exercise has very beneficial effects on the brain through its effects on BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and many other um, growth factors related to nerve um, generation slash maintenance. You know, um, other things that are important here: the diet. Diet has been studied in relation to um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Some of the diets that would typically be looked at would be the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet. So diets that would be similar to these types of characteristics. You can look up the characteristics of those diets, but honestly, it comes back to all the things that we've already discussed, including, um, you know, ensuring plenty of fruits and vegetables, higher intakes of unsaturated fats, keeping dietary salt or sodium intake a little bit lower, um, consuming protein from um, leaner protein sources uh, in general, not having high intakes of, of red meat, et cetera. All of these different things are going to contribute to a lower risk of, of Alzheimer's long-term as well. Um, blood lipids and blood sugars, they're both going to be impacted by 
um, everything that we've discussed there. But generally, if you do have um, an adverse blood lipid profile that would give you uh, cardiovascular disease, or you've got um, out of control blood sh sugars, secondary to diabetes, for example, these also increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Cognitive training is something that also plays a role here. So if you're you know, I don't know, learning more languages throughout your life or you're engaged in intellectual activities throughout your life, as opposed to just being, let's say, having no stimulus from your external environment for the last 40 years of your life, that's probably going to be protective of later cognitive function as well. So keep that mind busy, keep training your mind just like you would your body, you know, um, avoid head trauma. Sorry, Patty. This is something that <laughs> you should try to do. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, it's completely acceptable from my perspective. If you're saying, I want to be a boxer, I want to you know, fight MMA, I want to be a rugby player, I'm totally willing to accept uh, anything that comes down the line. Once you know the risks, it's your life. You, know, you're, you, you can absolutely continue. But there are things that you can do, even within that type of attitude towards life, to reduce the risk of um, brain damage short and long term. One of the simplest things here is, if you're going to join a fighting gym of any sort, find one that has a, you know, kind of more mature culture uh, towards things like uh, hard sparring, for example. You know, you'll go to some gyms um, and what you'll see is that, you know, coaches are of a very old school, hardcore mindset where you, you're going in sparring you know, multiple nights per week, you're sparring hard, you're, getting, you're taking kicks to the head, maybe you're taking knees to the head, whatever it happens to be. And that type of approach might make uh might lead to some people getting through and a survivorship bias you know type of fashion where they become tough fighters and they they, they get great results but many people are going to be uh, left with uh, potentially uh, trauma to their brain that might impact their cognitive function later on in life so um, try to find a, a gym that has a more positive culture towards that that understands that maybe you don't want to be leaving with your ears ringing every single night and forgetting where you put your keys the next day um, and that will probably serve your, your goals a bit better. Would you agree? I would 100% agree. And it doesn't just go for like combat sports, because obviously that's what we think about, because, you know, we both engage in a combat sport, mm -hmm. but also in terms of like you play rugby or yeah. you play football, like especially soccer. That's a that's a one that you don't necessarily immediately think, oh, yeah. avoid head trauma. Like, what are you talking about? But like every time you head that ball, you know, that could be coming at you at a tremendous speed, you know, with gravity also helping it and you're heading that ball, you know, it's like there is a significant head trauma there. So you need to be aware of those trade-offs, you know, are you going to go for that header? Or are you going to go do play that rugby? Are you going to go in, or play rugby, go into that scrum, do whatever. And even if you're okay with the trade-offs, there are still some like risk mitigation strategies that you can employ, such as asking your coaches, asking the staff being like, what, are you aware of the signs of, you know, concussion? What do you do if one of the players gets a concussion? Like, do you have a, you know, set process for that? Cause you'd be surprised by how many teams just don't. They're just like, Oh, I don't even know the symptoms. Like I've talked to so many people and obviously it's different. Like we grew up in the nineties and early two thousands and this stuff wasn't as prevalent in terms of the knowledge about it. But so many of these like clubs back in the day, they were just like, Oh, like this guy clearly had head trauma clearly was like, I don't, like, where the fuck am I? You know, was seeing stars, you know, completely blacked out for a second. And then they're like, yeah, look, just run it off. You know, just there you go. Get back on the field. You know, it's like, that's, that's not going to be beneficial for your health. So you need to have a club that's actually looking out for your health, not just looking out for the fact that you are a key player 
on the team, you know? So there are other things that you can do in terms of, you know, avoiding head traumas, concussions, et cetera. But look, this is not the podcast to dive deep into it. Ultimately, if you don't want Alzheimer's or, or dementia later in life, avoiding head trauma is probably a beneficial strategy. It's probably a beneficial strategy regardless. Um, but ultimately we're talking about Alzheimer's and dementia here. Absolutely. And then I suppose the final two things, you know, again, coming back to it over and over again, reduce or minimize or mitigate entirely, get rid of entirely alcohol and smoking. Okay. Not going to keep saying it, just, you know, minim- minimize your alcohol and just get rid of smoking. Okay. As best as you can. Social connections then as well as something that's really important. This comes back to what I said about the environmental um, stimuli, you know, psychological stimulation, the need for um, your brain to be dealing with new challenges, to be, you know, maintaining your language, your memory, et cetera. Social connections is something that is, that is protected there as well. And that's also something that becomes really important later in life because when people, if someone does have Alzheimer's, they have increased needs, you know, and sometimes home health services. Um, my mom's a, a home health, uh, healthcare assistant and, you know, she does a great job. And my grandmother was always very lucky to have her, but you mightn't have the, the level of, of care later in life. So um, having a, so, a good social support network, whether it be family or otherwise, to help you when those times get tougher, and that's something that's going to be important as well. So, um, yeah, that's Alzheimer's. We all have 10 to 20 kids. Absolutely. Minimum. <laughs> anyway, we have two left to do. And the, despite being actually quite large disease processes, we can get through these quite, quite quickly. They are somewhat related as well. Um, diabetes, Gary. Now, we don't need to go too deep into this because we talk about a lot of the stuff that needs to be done for diabetes management. Now, primarily, we're talking about type 2 diabetes when we talk about this stuff. Like type 1 is a little bit of a different matter. But ultimately, there are a few things we can do in a diabetes context. What are they, Gary? Yeah, the big thing with diabetes, guys, is, is, is avoiding or trying to get out of, easier said than done, obesity. Okay, Excess body fat, increasing body fat over time, huge, huge risk factor for type two diabetes. Okay. Probably the primary thing that you need to be concerned about. So weight management is, is really number one here. We know that if someone has developed type two diabetes, that it, it can be reversed or put into remission with enough weight loss. It's difficult to achieve granted, but it is something that's achievable. Um, less achievable, the longer the disease has been ongoing, but still something that you're likely to benefit from. So that's kind of the first thing there is diet and weight management are huge. Primarily with diet, you know, you can get into the nuances of how exactly your diet should look, but the the calorie deficit element here is very, very important because what you're trying to do is facilitate weight loss. And that goes back to all the things that we typically recommend. High fruit and veg, surprise, surprise, you know, high fiber intake. Um, You might want to uh, boost your protein intake would probably be wise. Um, Potentially, you might make the case that a lower carbohydrate approach might be advisable here, but really it's the... It's the um, calorie de- calorie deficit side of things and the facilitating weight management that you really see the robust benefits from um, in relation to diet and type 2 diabetes. Exercise is also something that's quite important here. Exercise is direct, you know, insulin sensitizing um, and non-insulin uh, mediated glucose uptake mechanisms. Uh, so if you're exercising regularly, you're going to be increasing your chances that you can sustain any weight loss that you achieve, but also that you're able to better manage your blood glucose. So that's something that's just incredibly important, along with mitigating the um, vascular effects 
of diabetes as well. Like type two diabetes is effectively like a, a very, very, very strong risk factor for many of the things that we already discussed. So we discussed cardiovascular disease, like type two diabetes is, is just a huge contributor to that process in terms of uh, damage to your blood vessels and accelerating that process of atherosclerosis. So it's really, really important there as well. Um, limiting alcohol is something that's important. Okay. Alcohol can contribute to things like fatty liver, which can contribute to insulin resistance and the overall pathophysiology um, of type two diabetes. So you definitely want to limit your alcohol as best as you can. And in cases where required, you may need to take medication. If you've already got type two diabetes, you're not able to sustain or to, to achieve enough weight loss to reverse or put the process into remission. In that case, that that's you, you may require medication such as metformin. You know, there's many other medications on the market these days. And the tizolindodiones, proud of that one. Um, <laughs> many other types of medications, SGLT2 inhibitors, potentially insulin in some cases, lots of other uh, medications that would potentially be chosen there. But uh, diet and, and weight management is just the really big one there if you want to start to get things under control. Um, so that's diabetes. Yeah, look, as I said, we don't need to spend too much time on it because a lot of the stuff that we talk about does lead to benefit in the type 2 diabetes management. Anyway, type 1 is a little bit different, but we're not going to go too much into it. Well, we're not going to go into it at all today um, because it is a bit more of a, an autoimmune condition. And realistically, there's not much you can do in a preventative capacity or necessarily a treatment capacity in terms of the stuff that we would talk about you need to talk to your doctor about that stuff you know so we won't talk about that the next thing though and the final thing and it is also related to diabetes and it's also related to a few other uh diseases that we've talked about earlier on it's kidney disease gary give us the lowdown on kidney disease yeah i mean kidney disease guys is like obviously there, there's many 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 different types of, of kidney diseases but the big things that we're thinking about when it comes to prevention are hypertension so blood pressure okay very very significant contributor um throughout the world to um kidney disease long term that's a huge one managing blood pressure please refer to everything we discussed already same with diabetes Dia diabetic uh, nephropathy is a huge contributor again to chronic kidney disease so if you think about it if you've got massive flow of blood pressure pumping into the kidneys um, affecting the kidneys, you know, regulation of your blood volume and all those types of things, along with uh, the effects of, of diabetes, where you've got high levels of glucose in the blood, high levels of glycation of different proteins um, in the blood and in the kidneys. This leads to the deterioration in, in kidney function over time. So they're two of the really big things that you want to address the blood pressure um, and diabetes or blood glucose regulation. Really important. Managing blood lipids is also something that can be useful. Um, remember that if you can get if you can get plaques in an artery in your heart, you can also get them uh, anywhere else. You know, so you can get plaques in many different types of arteries and that can also impact your kidneys. Additionally, exercise, exercise is again, something that's helpful in the vast majority of cases. It can reduce your risk of kidney disease and reduce progression uh, as can limiting your intake of alcohol and also things like uh, salt and all the other contributors to uh, the, the adverse uh, risk factors that we discussed above, such as blood pressure. So yeah, look, there's, there's many different nuances to kidney disease beyond the scope of this podcast. But I think if, if you've taken all of the, the above on board, and you take action, you're doing better than 99% of the population. 100%. So to wrap this all up, we effectively have a number of high yield 
items, habits, you could say, that we could focus on. And these appear to be managing your body weight, you know, and that, all that involves, you know, all the other stuff, you know, a calorie appropriate diet, a generally good diet, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately being at a better body weight um, or rather being at a healthier body weight seems to be better for your health. Who would have thought it, you know, um, eating a healthy diet, you know, and we talk about a million and different, a million and one different ways to eat a healthy diet and what that could potentially look like. But ultimately it seems like fruit and veg seems to be uh, good. Eating enough protein seems to be good for a lot of different things. And we obviously don't want to go too much, too overboard on that. But a lot of the different things that we focus on with the diet, you know, ultimately it's a bit like a noise and we just want to eat a healthy diet. One that ticks the boxes with all the other stuff that we want to do, especially eating fruit and veg. You know, that really does seem to be a very high yield uh, item, you know, and um, don't drink or smoke. Again, pretty obvious. You've heard us bring it up multiple times through multiple disease processes. Look, Gary drinks. I don't, you know, um, some drinking potentially could fit into your diet, but ultimately I don't think some smoking should fit into your, your overall lifestyle, you know, but take that on board for whatever way you can. Exercising seems to be a benefit. Aerobic and resistance training seem to be, you know, the two highest yield areas Um, getting enough sleep and stress management as well. And then managing your blood lipids and pressure. They seem to be very high yield items. They affect a lot of different disease processes. So if you do all the things, you're like, okay, look, I can't focus on all of these things that I talked about in this episode. If you just focus on the first section where we're talking about cardiovascular disease and you're like, all right, I'm going to focus on everything in there. Look, you put yourself into a fantastic position with regard to all of the other disease processes, you know, like that's probably the highest yield area again, because that's the area that's going to kill the vast majority of people, but also the stuff in that affects everything else. Because again, going back to that initial analogy, look, if the plumbing system doesn't work, you know, and there's no blood flow getting to this organ or these systems that is helping with, you know, keeping that organ working or getting rid of waste products from that organ. Look, we're going to run into issues. Now that's obviously very simplified, but ultimately blood flow is important. You know, I think we all understand that. So managing your blood lipids, keeping those pipes clean, and then also managing your blood pressure, i.e. keeping the actual heart healthy and then all the stuff that is involved in that really high yield items. So Gary, do you have anything else to, to say on that or anything you want to finally wrap up with? No, I think that covers it all. Fantastic. Then tell people where they can find us. As always, guys, you can find us on our social media at Triage Method. Okay, we're putting out a lot of content, a lot of video content. People seem to love the video content on Instagram, Reels, and all that sort of jazz. So do check those out. Um, share the content as well. It's it's always welcome when people share or tag a friend or something along those lines. Helps get the word out. We really appreciate it. Now, we do also have coaching spaces available, okay? I'm currently full for coaching spaces, but you can get on my waiting list, but other coaches have spaces available. Um, depending on when you're listening to this, I might have a space available, so just inquire and we'll see what we can do. But you'll find information related to our coaching service in the description box below, and we can try to get you on the path towards your health, strength, fitness, etc. goals, okay? Now, we do have a number of other services that you can engage with. We have a newsletter, okay? 
Um, we recommend that you subscribe to that. It's free. You're getting free bonus content that we're not going to post on our social media. So that's something that's quite advisable. We do a Facebook group as well, um, the Triage Method Community, which you can also join. And you can ask any questions that you want in there. If you'd like to open up a discussion with ourselves or other trainers, or you have questions about the podcast, anything along those lines, you can get in touch with us there on the Facebook group. And also, pod, our Spotify recently uh, introduced uh, allowing ratings on podcasts and things like that. So if you want to leave a rating and review, um, I think just a rating, like a star rating, you can do that on Spotify. So we'd appreciate that. And any other podcast platform that you happen to use as well, we'd also appreciate that. And if you want to give the podcast a share, do so on your Instagram story or whatever social media you use or share it with a friend privately and help get the good word of triage out there. Fantastic. Anyway, I have nothing else to say, so I hope everyone enjoyed this. And uh, sorry again for being late with the podcast. We'll try not to let it happen again. Peace out.